And as you're resuming your seats, turn with me to John 16. John 16. We'll be reading verses 8 through 15. John 16, verses 8 through 15, and considering the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verses 8 through 15, the work of the Holy Spirit. Give attention to God's holy word. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said he will take of mine and declare it to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus taught us that he has many things to say to us, but we are not able to bear them. And it is only at the advent of the Spirit that we are able to bear your truth. And so we ask, Lord, that you would send your spirit, quicken us, strengthen us, to be edified by the preaching of your word. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I consider myself quite uh, happy that in God's providence we're looking at this passage at this time. Those of you who were here when I was ordained may recall... This was the passage that was preached at my ordination service. In the Presbyterian Church, when ministers are ordained, another minister from the Presbytery will preach a sermon at that ordination service. This was the passage that was preached at mine. However, beyond personal connection to this passage, I think in God's providence, it is a happy coincidence, we might say, that we're looking at this passage this weekend. I'm sure that many of you have heard of the revival going on in Asbury. Uh, Well, the the college is Asbury. The town in Kentucky is called something else. Certainly you have heard about what's going on. CNN, Fox News, the Washington Post, Christianity Today, they're all covering this. There is even a Wikipedia page. So there must be something going on if they created a Wikipedia page. I think in light of this and and the buzz that this has created in the Christian world, we would do well to heed the words of John the Apostle in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. As I mentioned, I count myself happy and I count you blessed beloved congregation, that in God's providence, without producing any kind of special sermons, without having to go away from our ordinary exposition of the Gospel of John, we are here today, following the ordinary routine that we have been following. 
We have opportunity then to test the spirit of Asbury. We have an opportunity to learn what the actual work of the Holy Spirit is. What should we expect the Spirit to do when He is poured out and He comes to a people or a place in power? We have an opportunity to learn the marks, the signs by which the Spirit works. This passage gives us that answer. Specifically, what we're going to learn is that the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ to the shame of the world and the salvation of the elect. The work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ to the shame of the world and the salvation of the elect. We're going to see two things in this passage. Verses 8 through 11, the shame of the world. And verses 12 through 15, the salvation of the elect. Verses 8 through 11, the shame of the world. And verses 12 through 15, the salvation of the elect. And so we begin with verses 8 through 11. You'll you'll notice in verse 8 that uh, he begins, well, pardon me, back up a little bit and consider the context, the broader context. We saw this last week, verses 5 through 7. Christ is promising them comfort the solace of the Holy Spirit. Christ is going to be taken away from them. He's going to ascend to his Father. Sorrow has filled their heart. And then verse 7, Christ says, Nevertheless, it's better for you that I go away. For the Helper is going to come. And when the Helper comes, he's going to bring Christ closer to you than I ever could be in the flesh. He is going to come and glorify Christ. Now, in verse 8, Christ then begins to speak about how does the Holy Spirit help us? What is the solace of the Holy Spirit? And he begins in verse 8 by speaking of the world. Notice what he says. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Remember, in the context of this uh, upper room discourse, the world refers... Not to those outside of the visible church. That's not the referent. The world refers to all of those who live according to the flesh. We've seen this in several places already through this discourse. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The beginning of uh, chapter 16, he says, These things I've spoken to you, so that you should not be made to stumble. They, the world, will put you out of the synagogues. And so the world is a reference to those who live according to the flesh, whether outside or inside the church. That's the world that's being spoken of. So when Christ says he will convict the world, that's who he's speaking to. Those that are still in their sins. The other apostles speak about these things. James chapter 4, James is writing to professing Christians, and he tells them, you're living carnally. You're living according to the flesh. You're behaving like the friends of the world. You perhaps know the passage. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that there are some who live in such a way in the church that they are treasuring up wrath for themselves. Romans is written to those who are called to be saints. And then in chapter 2 of the book of Romans, Paul says to these people called to be saints, your impenitence is treasuring up wrath for yourself. So we need to keep this in mind that the world is a reference to those who live according to the flesh. It's not a reference to those outside of the visible church. It's a reference to those who live according to the flesh. Notice the word that Christ uses. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This word in Greek is a very interesting word. It's the same word you find in one of the perhaps uh, best theologies of the Reformation. Some of you may know the name Francis Turretin. His theology was called the Elenctic Theology. Now that's a difficult word to say. It's the word that's used here. Uh, The word Elenctic Theology and the word that Christ uses means to refute an opponent through evidence and logic. It means to dispute and prove something through evidence, pardon me, and logic. This would be a formal conviction through logic and proof. Think about a lawyer in a law court and the way that lawyers go about making their case. Here is Exhibit A, and the suspect was here at this time, and Exhibit A ended up in the victim's head. And so the evidence and the logic is that the suspect killed the victim with Exhibit A. Logic and evidence. That's the word that Christ uses here. That when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let me, let me put it more baldly. The Holy Spirit will argue with the world and prove to them these three things. Well, what are the three things that he's going to prove? The first that he says is sin. The next few verses he explains himself. Verse 9, of sin, because they do not believe in me. This means that the Holy Spirit is going to convince the world that in the world and in the flesh there is nothing but sin. That in mankind we are nothing but sinners compared to God's holiness. Our best efforts, our good intentions, all of the elevated pious emotions that we have, everything that we do is nothing but sin. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Westminster Confession 6, verses, uh, uh, paragraphs 2 through 4. And in that confession, we are told the doctrine of sin. We are told that Adam and Eve fell into corruption. And this corruption of nature was passed on to all of their offspring who are born in the normal way that people are born. And that this natural corruption is the source of all actual sins. In other words, the proof that the Holy Spirit engages in is that you sin, you lie, murder, steal, cheat, blaspheme, because your heart is sinful. You produce sinful fruits because you are sinful at your root. Christ proves this doctrine in Matthew 15. Turn to Matthew 15. 
How hard is it for the world to confess this? The proverb says that each man is convinced of his own goodness. How often are our hearts so convinced of our own rightness? Look at what Christ says, Matthew 15, verse 16. Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth and goes into the stomach is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Notice that Christ covers all ten commandments in that list. All ten commandments. Blasphemies covers the first four. And then the other ones he lists covers the last six. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Notice the doctrine of sin that Christ teaches, the doctrine of sin that the Holy Spirit persuades the world of. Sin comes from us because we are sinners. But how often does the world think of itself as, I'm a decent person and I made a few mistakes along the way? Uh, I'm okay and so are you. Uh, We are uh, made in the image of God and so we have some worth, dignity, and value. That's the new thing. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he convinces the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a very important thing we need to learn about our lives and how to judge ourselves. We often reverse the doctrine. We often don't judge ourselves the right way, the way that the Holy Spirit tells us to judge ourselves. We often will start with trying to judge the heart and say, well, my heart is good, and then judge our actions based on the assumption of our heart. Did you know that you cannot read your heart? Only the Lord Jesus can look at your heart. Only the Lord Jesus can discern who you are at the heart. And what he says in this passage and other passages is the way that you discern the state of your heart is look at the fruit it produces. Look at the things that come out of your heart and from that discern what your heart is like. The wrong way is to say that my heart is good and so the thing that I did was not really sin. The right way, I did that thing which was sin, therefore my heart must be bad. This is what David says in Psalm 51. David's confessing his actual transgression with Bathsheba, his actual murder of Uriah, and then he says, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. You will make me know the truth in the inner depths of my being. He confesses his sin all the way down to the wicked root. There's one last thing to say about this because there's there's a grave error that's going on in the church not this congregation per se, but in the church broadly. There's a grave error going on uh, that contradicts our confession and it contradicts the Word of God. And that is simply that original sin, that native corruption we have from Adam, is not really sinful. That you don't need to repent of original sin. We, we often, uh, we all would agree, I hope, that we have to repent of actual sin, so if I tell a lie, if I steal, 
if I speak a blasphemy, I have to repent of those particular things. But we often think uh, that the error is that you don't have to repent of a corrupt heart. That is a fatal mistake. We do have to repent of our native corruption. We do have to repent of our original sin. The last thing I'll say about this. He says in John 16, He will convict them of sin because they do not believe in me. Notice how Christ is exalted here. The Holy Spirit is exalting Christ to the shame of the world. The reason that they are convicted of their sins by the power of the Holy Spirit is because they do not believe in the Savior from sin. They do not trust in the one who can actually deliver them from their sins. And when the Holy Spirit actually convicts us of our sins and exalts Christ as the Savior, we say along with the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ. I glory in the cross of Christ because my sinful original corruption is put to death in Christ. And so he says he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. He goes on in the next verse and says that he will convict the world of righteousness. Notice, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. This conviction and and demonstration that the Holy Spirit will do for the world, do to the world, is to convince them that there's nobody righteous except Christ. And why is Christ the only righteous one? Because he's the only one that has gone to heaven. He is the only one worthy to enter the presence of the Father. He's the only one who's worthy to dwell in God's presence. He is the only righteous one. 1 John 2.1, John writes and says, If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. At the baptism of Christ, we hear God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well pleased means that he obeyed his Father and is therefore the only man who has a right to go to the Father. Christ is the only Righteous One. What does this mean for us? This means that we are not righteous. None of us have any worth. None of us have any value. None of us can earn or do anything to earn God's favor. This is often where we make the mistake. This is often where the world makes a mistake. And those who live according to the flesh make a mistake. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10.12, 2 Corinthians 10.12. 2 Corinthians 10.12, Paul says this. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. This is often how we judge our own righteousness, isn't it? Well, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. I have more good deeds than they do. But you see, for righteousness to really mean something, 
It has to be a righteousness that gives you access to God's presence in heaven. The righteousness that we will all be judged by is the righteousness of Christ, not the righteousness of men, not the righteousness of one another, but his eternal righteousness. Christ said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless your righteousness is better than the legalistic righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, who were trying to keep God's law, who were trying to do what God commanded, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the Holy Spirit will convince the world of righteousness. The last thing that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of is judgment. Christ tells us this in verse 11. He says he will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This means, quite simply, that in the death of Christ, Satan, the ruler of this world, has been defeated. Hebrews 2.14, the author writes and says that Christ, by means of death, destroyed him who had power of death, that is, the devil. And so the devil has been defeated in the ministry and the death of Christ. You know, if the general has been killed, the army cannot last very long. If the king is destroyed, the kingdom will fall apart. If the head is taken away, the body will not live. And so the ruler of this world of sin and rebellion has been defeated. Satan has no power here. Rebellion, carnality, self-indulgence, living the filthy life of the world has no hope. The king of all the sons of pride has been defeated in Christ through his judgment. He has been cast out and now Christ rules. There is no hope in rebellion. There is no hope in sin. There is no hope in murder. There is no hope in deception. For the father of lies has been destroyed. Now you might ask yourself, what's the point of all this conviction? At the end of the day, the, the, the Holy Spirit exalting Christ to the shame of the world, why would he do all this? What is the point of all this conviction? Those that are in the flesh would rather that he not do this work. Those that live according to the flesh would rather not Christ be exalted. Don't exalt him, exalt me. You read the Old Testament, you hear them speaking of the prophets. They say, shut their, they shut their ears to the truth. They tell the prophets, prophesy no more the words of God. Those that are in the world have itching ears and cannot long endure sound doctrine, 2 Timothy 4. They then go in search of teachers according to their own pleasure and heap up doctrine that doesn't convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It allures through the lust of the flesh. Turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter warns us of the false prophets and how the false prophets operate. The false prophets operate by appealing to the flesh. Peter writes and he says in chapter 2 verse 1, 2 Peter 2, 1, but there were also false prophets among the people, 
even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice verse 3, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. You know, one of the common refrains in Paul's letters is, do not be deceived. Those who live according to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. What are these deceptive words that false prophets will use? It's the same deceit that Satan used in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say that your sins are worthy of wrath? Did God really say that you have no claim upon his mercy? Did God really say that? Through deceptive words, they will exploit many. Continuing into verse 12, skipping down to verse 12, uh, sorry, verse 10. He's speaking more about the false prophets, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. Skipping down to verse 12. But these like natural brute, brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Skipping down to verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. They are cursed children. They've forsaken the right, and, uh, the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Skipping down to verse 17, these are wells without water, clouds carried about by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness. Have you ever listened to a lot of contemporary Christian music? It's great swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by whom by him also he is brought into bondage. There will be false prophets among you. There will be false teachers who claim to be operating under the power of the Spirit, but they operate according to the flesh. They allure through the lusts of the flesh. And what does the flesh want? Validation. Validate my feelings. Validate my experiences. Tell me I'm worth Christ's love. We, none of us are worth Christ's love. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes and says, you are unworthy, and God will still save you. You are unworthy, but Christ loves the unworthy. Not because of who they are, but because of who he is. It's my opinion that this is the Asbury Revival. There have been many revivals like this in the history of America, going back to the Second Great Awakening, and these things happen from time to time in America. 
alluring through the lust of the flesh, alluring through covetousness and all of these things, promising liberty to people who are in bondage to corruption. I believe this is not the work of the Spirit. I believe it's a work of the flesh. Now you may ask, how can you say that, Pastor? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, the doctrine that has been preached by ordained ministers who've gone and witnessed has almost zero emphasis on sin, righteousness, and judgment. There is almost zero emphasis on Christ as the Savior of sinners. There is almost zero emphasis on the sins of our age. That's all I'll say. If you want to ask me more afterwards, feel free to, but that's all I'll say at this point. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Test the spirits. See if they are from God. But going back to our passage of John 16, why this heavy conviction? Why this weight of heaven upon the world and sinners' consciences? Because our pride is such that it requires the divine testimony of the Holy Spirit to convince us that the sinner has no hope in himself. It requires the spirit of creation to fall into our hearts and persuade us. It requires the testimony of the Holy Spirit to humble the pride of man. You know, if you go and read Job 41 through 14, I won't turn there right now, but that's a good passage to look at for this doctrine. Job 40 verses 1 through 14, God comes to Job and says, you've complained against me. I'm going to question you. Answer me like a man. Tell me if you can answer all of these other things. Tell me if you're able to destroy Leviathan. Can you play with him like one of your pets? And of course the answer is no, Job can't do that. And God's response to Job is that neither can you humble the sons of pride. But I can. This conviction is necessary to humble our pride and to bring us to a place where we can receive mercy. He will convict the world by exalting Christ and he will save the elect by exalting Christ. That's what we turn to next in verses 12 through 15. Notice the change of audience. When he has come in verse 8, he will convict the world. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you. Not the world. He will guide you, my people. He says that you cannot bear the things that I'm going to tell you now. Why are babies so short when they learn to walk? Do you know? So they don't get concussions every five minutes. If they were as tall as us, they would have head trauma after head trauma after head trauma. I watch my little girl fall and I think, man, I'm glad I don't fall like that at five foot eleven. And so what Christ is telling the disciples here, there's certain things that I want to tell you, but you're not strong enough to bear it yet. You need to grow up a little bit before you can bear these things, just as a child needs to learn how to walk before they can run. Well, Christ tells us this, and that our spiritual stature has to mature. The word used for bear, by the way, 
in this passage is the word that comes from foot. It's the same Greek word for foot. You can't carry the things I'm going to give you. Uh, the upshot is that our knowledge of the truth depends upon our ability to carry it. Depends on our ability to bear up under it. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writing about the gift of the Spirit and the work that the Spirit will do in the church. And Ephesians 4 verse 7 he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ. Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean that he first also descended? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now think with me. When Christ ascended, what did he pour out upon the church? He poured the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul expands that idea and says he poured out the Holy Spirit by giving apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Continue reading, verse 14 that we should no longer be children, immature, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So Paul tells us, just as John tells us, there are certain things we can't handle until we mature. That's what Christ tells them in this passage. Notice what Christ says, verse 12, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The Spirit is the one who enables you to bear the truth of the gospel. The Spirit is the one who enables you to believe unto salvation. When He comes, He will guide you. Ephesians 3, verse 16, this is one of Paul's greatest prayers for the church. I won't turn there now, but I commend it to you for your meditation. Pay attention to what Paul prays for. The Spirit, so that Christ might dwell in you. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, on one hand, I think we're supposed to be humble. The Spirit is the one who gives us understanding. It's not our intellect. It's not our flesh. It's not our study. It's the Spirit who opens the mind to understand the things of Christ. On the other hand, be encouraged doesn't matter what intellect you have. doesn't matter how good of a reader you are. The Holy Spirit can give you understanding just as he gives the next man understanding. It is the Spirit who gives this life. It says that he will lead you into all truth. The word here in Greek is a guide or a leader. This means not only will he show you the path, but he will cause you to walk in it. Not only will he show you that you need to repent, he will cause you to repent. Not only will he show you that you need Christ, he will cause you to believe in Christ. 
This is the characteristic of the elect. This is the characteristic of those that are actually saved. They not only know the truth, but they do the truth. And the Holy Spirit leads them in it. Notice also that Christ says He will not speak on His own authority. What He hears, He will speak, and He will show you things to come. This is often looked at as prophecy of the future. That the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, will tell us that you're going to have a car accident on Tuesday. Or you're going to get cancer in five years. This is often how this is understood. I think it's a mistake. When it says that things, He will show you things to come, if you look throughout the Scriptures, prophecy about the future is always for the purpose of reforming you today. Predictions of the future are always for the reformation of the church today. They are not so that we can know the future. This is why every creed of the Christian church confesses the second coming of Christ. That's the thing that's coming in the future. That's the thing that we need to know, that Christ is coming. Coming to the end, you've been very patient. Uh, It says that he will glorify me. Look at what he says in verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The center of the Spirit's work is to exalt Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the elect, this is their salvation. Because to the elect whom God has chosen, to the elect whom God has opened to receive the truth, Christ is the chief among 10,000. Christ is the balm of Gilead. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the son of David. He's the son of man who is coming in glory. He's the lover of my soul, the savior of sinners who has died for me and given himself for me. Hallelujah. Christ is my Lord. And so when the Holy Spirit exalts Christ, it draws the elect into salvation. When the Holy Spirit exalts Christ, it drives the world to shame. Because the world wants to exalt itself instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will glorify me. Notice finally what he says. He will take up what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. This teaches us that when the Holy Spirit does this work, he's not going to do anything original. He's not going to bring new revelations the way it's often thought of today. He's going to preach the same old story. He's going to exalt the same old Jesus Christ. He's going to take of Christ's gospel and reveal it to you. He's going to do what he has always done throughout all ages. You know, I was teaching the new members class this morning, and we looked at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. And in Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 8, it says that the rulers of the church speak the word of God to you. Then it has this odd verse. It says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then in verse 9 it says, do not be carried away with strange doctrines. Don't run off into strange new gospels because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Word of God will always be the message of Christ and Him crucified. Don't run off into the highways and the byways looking for an experience. 
Stay with the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. One little freebie here. Notice that Christ speaks of the Trinity when he's speaking to the elect. He doesn't speak of the Trinity when he's talking about the world. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You have no hope in yourself. When he comes to the elect, he will exalt Christ, he will lead them into the truth, and they will learn more of the glory of God and his triune existence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ to the shame of the world and to the salvation of the elect. Now, there's one very important question for all of us. If it is only by the work of the Spirit that Christ is glorified in our lives, how much do we need the Holy Spirit? You know, at one level, I'm very sympathetic to the, to the desire of Asbury to see a revival of the Spirit. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. We desperately need Him in our churches and in our lives. The Spirit is the greatest gift, is the deposit, He's the seal, He's the comforter, He's the helper, He's the advocate, He's the friend of the church. Everything we do in the church is vain if the Spirit is not with us. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. In Paul's benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians, which I will use at the end of this service, he blesses the people by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the one who is near and close and guiding us. It is the Spirit that we need. And the Father has promised that Spirit to those who ask. Listen to the words of Luke 11. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask, and your Father will give without upbraiding and without chastising. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he works when and where he pleases. But we thank you also, Lord, for your promise that is ever ratified in the blood of Christ, that if we ask, you will give. And so we ask, O oh Lord, for the Holy Spirit to fall down into our churches, that you might revive us in the midst of the years and guide us into all truth. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.